0: Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations.
1: We, 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 we. we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the Fifth Column.
0: This is Camille Foster of Freethink column. and still column. very much co captain of this estimable audio enterprise, the Fifth Column podcast. A little different, no Moynihan, no Welch, and. What I actually have to share with you is something that we made about a week ago. A little bit of background. Uh, November 2018, I was able to talk with four guys who I have an enormous amount of respect for. Um, They're brilliant intellectuals, um, fantastic writers, independent thinkers. It's uh, a a conversation with Glenn Lowry, who's a professor of social science and economics at Brown University also hosts The Glenn Show at Blogging Heads TV, Thomas Chatterton Williams, uh, award-winning author, contributor to The New York Times, and author of the fabulous book, Losing My Cool, as well as his more recent book, uh, Self-Portrait in Black and White, which if you have not read, uh, you should really, really read, Uh, John McWhorter, professor of linguistics and philosophy and music at Columbia, host of Slate's Lexicon Valley podcast, he also publishes a lot of stuff in a lot of places, Uh, currently doing some things with The Atlantic, but you've probably seen him on television. John has been enormously influential in my own intellectual development. And uh, fan favorite, Mr. Coleman Hughes, newly graduated from Columbia, congratulations, Coleman, Um, and newly minted fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and also a contributing editor at City Journal. Um, All four of these guys are genuine intellectual heavyweights. We have some views that are very similar, um, and we have many places where we have thoughtful, interesting disagreements. This conversation occurs essentially two years almost after the first conversation under very different circumstances. Obviously, we're months into the pandemic And at the time that we had the conversation, there'd been two shootings involving uh, African Americans, and they had been getting a a fair amount of news, uh, one of which uh, was the young man in Atlanta who was chased down by uh, some neighbors after he'd gone into a home. And we talked about those cases. Uh, We also talked about a lot of the broader issues uh, related to race and COVID, and we had just some broader conversations around uh, race and politics. Uh, But it's a conversation that starts with us just talking about the pandemic. On the night I'm recording this, um, a lot of Americans, our attention isn't merely focused on the pandemic anymore. Uh, We're focused on a lot of the profound civil unrest that's gripped a lot of American cities. It is upsetting uh, there's already so much profound uncertainty, so much economic unrest. And to layer on top of that uh, highly polarized uh, racial conflict, uh, it, it really is like quite remarkable to see. I've actually personally had a, a tough time getting to sleep over the course of the last day. Obviously, since we recorded this conversation about a week ago, we don't have an opportunity to talk about uh, a lot of the latest developments uh, but I actually think that that's perhaps a bit for the good here. Um there's plenty that that could be said about these protests and demonstrations and I'm sure I'll have more things to say about that here on the podcast very soon. But I think it's worth having uh, a a more sober conversation about race in America. Uh, updating the conversation we had in 2018. Uh, If you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that conversation, I would still highly recommend you go back and partake. Uh, It's something I listened to fairly recently in preparation for the conversation that I had with the guys, and I still found myself learning new things there. Um, In this particular conversation, we do talk about life after COVID, which is something that is very much worth setting your <laughs> setting your mind to at the moment, uh, trying to imagine uh, things being a bit less chaotic and a little more normal than they are right now, um, but we also navigate a lot of the the new wave of thinking and perhaps not so much the new wave, but what increasingly, especially in the circles that I move in, feels like the the dominant Way of ordering your thinking around race, this notion of anti racism, this notion of thinking about people perhaps with respect to their identity groups first and the presumed disadvantages and privileges that are supposed to accompany membership in those groups. So, in either case, I'm delighted to be able to bring this conversation to you. I am confident you'll learn something. And I would love to hear from you afterwards. One quick programming note, both Glenn and John had to run at some point in the conversation. So they'll drop off. uh, But Coleman and Thomas and myself uh, continue the conversation for a little while. So been interesting in that way too, but thanks for tuning in. Look forward to catching you on another dispatch. I wonder if we could begin just by talking about how you all are, are doing and managing through all of this, how you're spending your time. Uh, Thomas, I know you're um, across the pond there in France. What is the what's the situation look like for you all?
2: It's been really interesting out here. I am in um, a region of France all the way west, just south of Brittany, that has some of the lowest. It's always had some of the lowest uh, coronavirus cases um, anywhere in the country. And so I've seen like the citizenry around me um, respond pretty responsibly to the, um, you know, the shared sacrifice we've all been asked to go into quarantine um, from like March 16th, 17th until May 11th. Nobody really rebelled against that. People just kind of accepted that this was the sacrifice that the country was going to come together and make. And the country also has a kind of social security net, safety net. So nobody was really, you didn't have this panic that people were going to lose their jobs the way that you see back home in the States. So. These were relatively undramatic, and we've just been out in this pretty rural area. And I've been doing an insane amount of uh childcare and and you know cleaning the house and mopping floors and stuff that we used to, you know, without thinking very hard about, outsource to a lot of people that help a middle class family pursue two careers. And so it's made me really uh figures out to, to help families work and 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 educate their young because it's, it it really does take quite a lot. So. I've been like eking out, you know, um, time to write four or five hours a day if I'm lucky. Um, and just this past week, um, the, the girl who helps us with our kids in Paris was able to join us now finally because quarantine orders have been eased. So I'm staying out here probably until July.
0: Gotcha. John and Coleman, I know you're both um, still back in New York. How how things been for you both? Coleman, what's it been like with college disappearing?
3: Yeah, it's it's been a strange time to graduate college, you know, whereas normally you would have the moment where you get out of your last exam and have that indescribable feeling of relief. That never really came. But other than that, I've been in New York in different neighborhoods living with my dad and my sister, trying to just get work done, watching a lot of great Netflix shows, just uh finished The Wire yesterday.
2: Hmm. What? So, you just finished The Wire for the first time?
3: Yep. Can
4: you imagine yep. what fun it would be to see it for the first time now? I know.
3: Like, yeah.
2: We'll never have that.
3: <laughs> my name is my name. My name is my name. That scene Excellent got me. i
2: television. I was thinking recently about uh, the when Avon and, and uh, Stringer say you only do two days, the day you go in and the day you come out. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. When we came out of uh, quarantine last week. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Wow.
0: John, have you been similarly productive during these unusual times? Uh,
4: no, I've been
0: so unproductive. And, you know, I do stuff. But I have
4: been less fertile now than I've ever been since I was about 25 years old. And it's just because I'm like, I'm just a fish out of water. You know, school ended in a heartbeat. You know, my classes were just starting to click and all of a sudden they're over. Yeah. And, you know, in my position, I'm supposed to talk about how teaching online is a substitute. It's not as good, but, you know, it's useful. It sucks. I utterly loathe it. It has made me literally think about going on leave next year because I can tell they're about to make us do it for at least fall semester. It mm. It is not what I do. It's not the way I teach. So, you know, I have to spend the semester not teaching classes to people who really need it and people who had to endure it. The students are the ones with the real problem. But to be a professor during that was really just it was as if your job was gone and yet you still had to do it. And then as soon as I heard anything about schools closing in the media, like four weeks before it happened, I thought "Eh, it's going to happen. I just I could smell it. I thought school is going to close. It's going to happen really quickly. So I just I just finished a book on profanity, and it's called Nine Nasty Words. I was on word number eight. And as soon as I heard that in the news, I thought, ah, I'm going to be home alone with my girls sometime soon. So I very quickly wrote the chapter on faggot and finished the one on bitch. And <laughs> <laughs> the day that I finished, de Blasio came down with this. And so, you know, after that, I've got girls five and eight, and I take care of them, you know, basically four days a week. But that means I don't have the book to read, You know, I knew I wouldn't be able to concentrate, but it also means I don't have that structure either. So I just take it day by day. Um, I don't watch a whole lot of Netflix, but I watch a lot of TV, a lot of movies. I'm sitting through Last Tango in Paris right now and as mystified as to why it's a good movie as I was when I first saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm reading a lot. And I think the only thing I'm doing that makes this worth it is like, I've been pretending to have read War and Peace since I was in college. <laughs> I never picked it up, but I talk about the characters. And I thought, you know what, if I'm ever going to read it now. So I'm in the middle of War and Peace. It is magnificent, but it is, it's a long one. And that's really <laughs> all. That's
0: it. So we, we need to find some things for John to do. Please. <laughs> so,
1: so John, John, wait a minute now. Uh, Nigger is one of those words, right? Oh yeah. That's the best chapter. That's right. Uh, I got I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> that
0: is that is almost certainly the most dangerous word in American politics and American society broadly. It's the worst word. Have you seen Randall Kennedy's book? Um, Back in the day? Yeah. yeah.
4: And it's funny how much more there is to say now. If you think about it, nobody would name a book nigger now. You, you could not. No mainstream publisher would call it that. And I feel yeah. like that was 10 minutes ago. But things have really changed yeah. with that yeah. word. Yeah. But, yeah, I took a look at it again before I
1: wrote the chapter.
0: Well, Glenn, you won't escape an opportunity to to share your own oh, COVID experience.
1: No, it's all good, man. Uh, well, first of all, I am fine. Uh, mm. You know, they they haven't laid us off yet. So the checks are still coming in. Um, I'm here with my uh, lovely wife, Lewan. Uh, We're getting to know each other better than we ever anticipated that we might because we're in the house together 24-7 pretty much. There's no place to go, nothing to do except talk to each other. Uh, We're watching TV, so uh, uh, I found myself really drawn into this kind of crazy uh, series, The Young Pope and The New Pope. What is it about that show?
4: My current, um, well, I won't say has told me to watch that.
1: First of all, the staging, the costuming, what the show is about is the Catholic Church and the papacy. And uh, two guys, one of them is John Malkovich, um, and the other one is... Uh, Jude Law. Jude Law. Ascend to the papacy in their own respective ways. Jude Law is the young pope, and uh, Malkovich is the new pope. And, and uh, there, it's about fanaticism. It's about pageantry. Uh, it's about a lot of the... Uh, unanswerable questions about religious faith. It's about what is a church. Um, it's about sex. It's about hypocrisy. It, it's it's about uh, the the uh, uh, you know sexual assault scandal within the Catholic Church. Uh, it's about ambition and politics of the kind of almost medieval uh, uh, Roman Church uh, character that you read about from you know the pre-Renaissance days and whatnot. So it's about a lot of stuff and it's beautiful to look at. It's it's very well written, uh, and it's edgy, man. Uh, you know, they they got a bumshot shot of Jude Law in one of them where he, you know, he's getting dressed and you're just seeing him naked from behind. And it's saying, This is the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> uh they've got all these dance routines where nuns are flying around in their habits, you know, doing a kind of a, a, a dance uh chorus line kind of uh uh, Why are they dancing? Good question. Good question. <laughs> they're human beings, and it's, the music is good, and they feel in the spirit, and they're dancing, man. <laughs>
4: okay, okay. I just put it on my literal list. I will watch
1: it. Anyway, let me finish up with my report. Yeah, I think David it's worth, dance, John. I, if you watch one episode, <laughs> you'll either want to watch more, or you won't. And you know, it only costs you an hour. You, you haven't, y'all haven't watched the last dance? Haven't watched? Oh, I'm watching the last dance too. Yeah. Oh, you are. Okay. Yeah. Remind me what that is. I'm blanking. This is this is uh, Michael Jordan. This is the Chicago oh, Bulls. Right. Yeah. Three peating yeah. twice. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and all the machinations that went on behind the scenes of the Bulls organization and Michael and you know, there's no NBA, so uh, you got to watch the Last Dance. <laughs> but I want to finish read my report. Uh, so my experience is not the same as yours, John, in terms of teaching. Although I really because I'm not teaching a seminar, where I want to be in close contact with the students and have an open-ended discourse. I'm teaching a large lecture course, and I miss the Q and A, but not that much. Uh, I can I can control what information I'm putting in front of the students. So I prepare lectures, and then I can interview uh, scholars about their research, and then put that up because everybody's got time. All the people writing these technical papers have got time. I can call them up. I can say I can share a screen with them. They can go through their PowerPoint. I can ask where their data come from and how they dealt with this or that particular problem and what about this question and that question. And it's as if I had them in the classroom. And I've done this with four different authors who are on my reading list that I've gotten personal appearances from in front of the students, which would have never been possible if I had to bring those people in physically. Wow. Um, so on the other hand, there's no feedback. I got no live interaction with the students. And so that's, that's something of a, to of me, a problem. Does- it loses all meaning
4: if I can't talk at them and talk to them and hear what they're thinking. But I know what you mean. Yeah.
1: And they wrote things. their papers and there's 78 of them or something, man. So, you know, uh, that we can't, the one-on-one is just not possible. I have office hours and nobody came, you know, I'm sitting here at my zoom address waiting for somebody to log on and nobody came to my <laughs> office hour. Please, please log on. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, and I'm, and I'm working. I got a lot of time on my hands now. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the throes of it, but I'm good. I'm, I'm healthy. Uh, the, the eerie thing about it is I live a mile from campus, so I can just bike over there without any effort, and it's absolutely deserted, and it's a very strange feeling to be walking around that campus with the trees in bloom, and you just, you know, it's crying out for activity, and there's nobody, it's a ghost town. I go to my office because I'm not worried about encountering anybody else there. Uh, My books are there. Most of my books are there. And, you know, I go in and uh, sometimes I work there just to have a change of pace. I have my mask at the ready in case I should encounter another human being. But uh, (laughs) that's me. You know, I haven't admitted that
4: I've done that a couple of times and we're not supposed to. But sometimes you need your books and you need what's on your office computer. And I sneak in there you know kind of dreading that somebody's going to see me but yeah. sometimes you have to yeah and it's one of the only things that's made me feel like myself since March yeah it's 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 weird
0: well i I'd, I'd be happy to just talk about um sort of our covid experiences and actually get your perspectives on various other aspects of the pandemic that i'm sure we've all been thinking about but it might be a good idea for us to jump in to to some of the the news of the moment um so to speak um, and I wonder if we might start with the whole question of identity politics in the midst of the pandemic, and specifically um, a lot of the concern that's been raised about Blacks and minorities being overrepresented in, in COVID stats. Um, I, I know, John and Glenn, that you too have talked about this, um, and Coleman and I have actually talked about this um, in a previous Fifth Column with uh, Zay Jelani. Um, I wonder where folks' perspectives are on this now. I don't know. Um, obviously, when we talked about it, Coleman, a lot of the data was actually just starting to to show up. So the concern materialized first, then the data actually started to show up. Um, I wonder what what folks are seeing in the data, whether or not they believe these concerns are material, and if they have any concerns about the concerns if that makes sense.
4: Well, here's one. And this is a genuine question. I mean, that the fatality rates and the racial disproportion reveal something about the American fabric is simply true. And if anybody wants to think of all of this as in a sad way, being useful and revealing those fault lines in society, as far as I'm concerned, I I get that. And I wouldn't say that they're taking some sort of advantage. It's real. But what worries me and I'm, out, I'm stepping outside of my zone, it's just that it worries me a little bit, is that what we're told is that the reason that there's such a Black disproportion is because of lack of access to healthcare? And if that's true, then something needs to be done about that, and I'm glad that this has pointed that up. But there's a part of me that can't help wondering whether that's really the whole story. I can't help wondering whether part of it isn't things that Black people could be taught to do and yet i think we all know that to say that in any public way means that you get smacked down as being paternalistic and condescending but still i think all all of us probably have experience with family where you think to yourself was all of it access or was some of it just that there's certain cultural grooves which often are furnished by things that went on in the past but what goes on in the present doesn't correlate exactly with conditions now always and i can't help thinking is that part of it and then very quickly I know that even with my um, mother, I think she was one of the last cohorts of this, but I'm not sure, and I don't live in the South, she avoided going to the doctor. My mother had a PhD, you know, she was a very cosmopolitan person, but she grew up in the deep South in the 40s and the 50s, and she didn't like going to the doctor because of the, he- the heritage of the Tuskegee experiment, and she didn't like white people, and I wouldn't like them either if I grew up in Atlanta in the 1940s, but didn't like going and having them pawing all over her and telling her what to do. That ended up, and I'm not going to tell the story, but that destroyed my mother's health and life. It ended up being that. It wasn't that she didn't have access, it's that she didn't want to go. And I wonder if that's part of it. And all of those things would be tragedies in themselves, but I just, I worry that the narrative is going to be just lack of access. And I'm afraid that if we only address that, I wonder if that will solve the problem. That's what I've been
0: thinking. Glenn, you're you're perhaps the most empirical uh, among us. I wonder if you've taken a close look at the data. Um, one of the things that has stood out to me um, as I've thought about this and watched some of the coverage about it is the degree to which a lot of the analysis is pretty, pretty surface level. Um, if people see, if they spot a disparity someplace, it's just the disparity gets the headline and the context is generally omitted beyond, say, state-level data about like population um, distribution, when in fact, the things that I'm probably most interested in are population distribution in the regions where it's hitting the hardest of a particular state. And oftentimes, it turns out that in a place like Detroit, for example, Detroit is overwhelmingly Black, and COVID cases tend to be concentrated in places like Detroit. So when the disparities emerge, and the disparities seem to mirror that it's perhaps a little less a little less um daunting um and a bit easier to wrap my hands around but a related point is when i look at the rest of the data like the whole of the data i see you know i think it's a third of all covid related deaths are and this is a conservative estimate from the new york times last week i believe a third of all COVID-related deaths are in nursing homes. And I don't know what population, what percentage of the U.S. population is in nursing homes. I imagine it's something less than a third, which means that they are profoundly overrepresented in the data, almost certainly many, many times more overrepresented in the data than Blacks. So again, empirical question here, what's the justification for focusing on race in particular with something like this versus whether or not you're institutionalized someplace, for example. like Those disparities seem to be the ones that are actually actionable and consequential. Perhaps most consequential is a better phrase.
1: Well, the Times actually ran a story this morning about nursing homes, which pointed out that the nursing homes that are disproportionately Black are more likely to have active COVID-19 cases than other nursing homes. I think it was something like 60% of nursing homes that are uh, mostly Black and only 30% of nursing homes that are you know, that have few Blacks are uh, places where there's an active COVID-19 case. So even if you restrict attention to nursing homes, you can still have a disparity argument in there. I have not independently and on my own research account looked into the data. I've read carefully, you know, a number of sources where people have been talking about the data. I I guess in reaction, uh, Camille, to your uh, general question, I would say... Uh, and, and and here I, I uh, echo John to some degree. I think the fact of the disparity is not something that should be overlooked or should go unremarked, even if we're not prepared to conclude from the fact of the disparity that there is some actionable racial justice question uh, that we should consider. The fact that, you know, it's a little bit like the flood. If you flood New Orleans, the low-lying areas are going to take more water because water rises up from the bottom. Before the flood, how people distributed themselves based on the the elevation of their location depended on their income, the way neighborhoods are organized, and all the rest. And you might find that disproportionately people of color are living in the lower-lying areas susceptible to the flood. Then the flood comes. Now you've got a racial justice issue, or do you? Uh, Here, the flood has come. We have the disparity. The disparity is a reflection of the pre-existing social arrangements, including the health uh, uh, conditions of the populations, but also how urbanized are they? What occupations do they, uh, what access to health care do they have? How do doctors treat them when they present themselves? And so on. Um, And uh, it would, I think, be wrong to ignore... The tragic implications for particular communities, and not only communities of color, uh, but uh, for people who are especially hard hit by this, that's a part of the pathos. It's a part of the tragedy of the circumstance. One wants to visit those uh, virtual funerals and interview the surviving people and understand something of the the texture of how that's affecting their lives. That's a part of the story. Uh, Why not tell that part of it? But I think the, the easy move from that uh, piece of journalism that talks about what's happening to our people in granular detail, the move from that on the one hand to some kind of moral claim about, for example, I heard someone say um, it was David Frum. I actually heard him say uh, that, you know, he's a Trump, never Trumper and that that's fine. Uh, but I heard him say, you know, the Republicans don't care. Uh, the Trump people don't care about the fact that it's only the black and the brown who are being hit so hard, and uh, the the fact of the disparity is in some way or another a reflection of the of the of the structural racism of the society. I, I mean, that's that's just empty rhetoric, in my opinion. Yeah.
3: So, with regard to that question, I, I think Nicole Hannah Jones also, and actually many people have made this point that the reason Republicans are pro lockdown is only because we now know that
1: uh, anti-lockdown. You mean pro-opening Lockdown. up, right? Correct, right.
3: yeah. The reason Republicans are pro-opening up is because we now know that black people are disproportionately dying of COVID. Right. And black life is devalued in their view. So that makes them just fine with opening up and you know, people that are too smart to get away with it have have said this and to me the the obvious question to ask is Well, if the economic lockdown is also hurting Black people disproportionately, as we would tend to assume it's going to, as it did in uh, the Great Recession of 2008, then a person who truly didn't care about Black well-being would be faced with two options that both disproportionately harmed Black people, namely an economic recession or increased COVID deaths. So it's a very, it's a very bizarre kind of logic that says, you know, really without any direct evidence that that's, that's, that's what's behind it. As far as the disparities themselves, I do feel like a, a broken record saying this. But of course, when you see a statistical disparity between two groups, you can't assume that any kind of systemic racism is is the cause of the disparity, and I think very reasonable people make that assumption because there's a huge amount of coverage bias in in the media, where the only disparities that get reported are the ones between blacks and whites. But if you if you wanted to go looking, you know, at, at the rest of the data, you could look at just mountains of CDC tables showing how. Really, each disease have a, has a different incidence by race. There are some cancers that black people are more likely to die from, some cancers that whites are more likely to die from, Asians, Hispanics, and you know, you you. It's a superficial analysis to say, well, well, yeah. I guess the, the point I'm making is the reason smart people jump to that conclusion is because they're only reading about the disparities in the one case and therefore assuming that there's something strange about there being differences, where if we became interested in the difference between Jews and Catholics, how Catholics and Protestants are faring in, in COVID, we might find very rich, equally rich sociological stories to tell um, about, we, we might find equally rich historical and policy-based stories to tell about why one group is doing better than the other. But it reflects our pre-existing biases and interests. And we, by we, I mean kind of like the intelligentsia or the media or the commentary or what have you. It reflects our pre-existing biases, which stories we choose to tell. And that that really influences how people mistakenly think of these issues.
2: I would just want to say, though, that like looking at the United States from across the Atlantic and being in a society that's full of flaws and that has... Um, racial even though france doesn't keep racial statistics there are discrepancies between um, the deaths that were in the banjo outside of paris where mostly arabs and some blacks live compared to the inner sanctums of paris where it's mostly upper middle class and higher and white Um, but there is not this kind of polarized political sense that the pandemic uh, is divisive it really is a kind of unifying um, event in all French people's lives in a way that seems quite normal to me as, as, as a people should respond, as a nation should respond to a global pandemic. And it, and it seems alarming and terrifying and, and, and befuddling and deeply pathetic. So when I look every morning at what's going on in America, how people are using um, the coronavirus to advance the kind of uh, further balkanization of American political and cultural life. Um, The racialization of the disease seems strange when you look at the outcomes in Sweden compared to the outcomes in parts of Africa and India where actually um, societies are faring um, differently depending on um, lots of other factors that can't be racialized. So the the conversation outside of America, it it, it has a particularly bizarre cast um, when you're not within it, I think. Yeah. You know, I wanted
4: to add a little something based on what um, Coleman said, too, which is that the very idea that black people might be more prone to get some diseases, just like Asian people might be more prone to get others, is considered sacrilegious to, to talk about my hobby horse in the kind of circles that we're talking about. You're not supposed to say that. So, Coleman, of course, you're making you know, perfect sense here, but. The people who we're talking about have a patch in their minds, which is that it could not possibly be that some people are more susceptible to A or B. And I will never forget in the early aughts when Troy Duster, who um, is an eminent black sociologist, had this claim that to market this drug called Bidil. And I don't know what's happened to it since, but to market Bidil as being particularly good at preventing heart attacks in black people, which, quite simply, it was. Was racist somehow? That it was dangerous to actually call attention to the fact that black people could benefit from it disproportionately, because supposedly that is reminiscent of black people being targeted in different ways during the Tuskegee experiment, et cetera. And I remember back then you could listen to him on NPR, you know, local ones and national. You could read interviews again and again. He, with his brilliant self, he's, he's descended. From Ida B. Wells, talk about Nicole Hannah-Jones and her Twitter handle. This man is actually from Ida B. Wells' loins, and yet he could not defend it. It was always utterly incoherent, and you'd have these hosts just sitting there pretending that all this stuff made sense. Talk about the young folks. This was pure
0: medieval religion, and he was never called on it. So that's the sort of thing that we're up against. Small disagreement, which we won't be able to adjudicate here, but I actually think <laughs> Duster, oh, no. Duster was right. Um, really? Why? I, I recommended um, Race in the Bottle uh, the last time uh, Coleman and I talked, which I, I believe has a pretty comprehensive account of the entire sort of buy it all, um episode. And my understanding of it is that the drug did not necessarily have uh, uniquely beneficial results for okay. African-American users. And it had a lot to do with the way that the test group was actually put together. And the reason for pivoting to specifically marketing this as an African American drug was to take advantage of an opportunity to, to extend the patent further. Sure. But again, that's a, that's a longer story and we'd have to adjudicate the facts. Now, which I, get, I, we probably I mean, we here. should get off of this.
4: I get that completely, but yeah. at least at the beginning, that's not what Duster was arguing. He was just arguing that the whole thing from the beginning was a polluted conversation. He wasn't saying that it's not true, it doesn't help Black which maybe that's why I haven't heard anything about it since then. The way he talked about it sounded much more obscurantist.
1: Surely the reason underlying his opposition is a concern about racial genetics, a concern about essentialism, about the idea that there's something fundamentally different about Black people that if allowed, the camel's nose under the tent with respect to this one opens the door for many other arguments of a similar sort, including arguments about intelligence, about proclivities to violence. So those arguments don't have to be wrong. There (laughs) there, may be differences in uh, populations. Uh, Charles Murray's got a new book out now that nobody has heard of because of the pandemic called Human Diversity. In which he's Charles Murray, and he tries to make the argument as effectively as he can that there really are differences between men and women, uh, that there are differences between uh, what he calls ancestral populations. So if you are descend from people mostly from Northeast Asia, you've got one kind of genome, and that's discernibly different in certain critical places from those who might have descended from sub-Saharan African populations and so forth and so on. Um, And that's the argument that people are trying to ward off, isn't it, when they object to this? Of course. course. But at the time, I was just thinking, if this
4: drug keeps, you know, my uncle, whoever, having a heart attack, then all of that stuff has to go. Although I respect what Camille's saying that it turned out that it didn't. Thomas, I interrupt.
2: But if there were actual genetic differences in the way that human bodies responded to COVID-19, then... It's so like provincial to have this conversation in an American context. Strictly, you would have to be comparing the way African populations have sure. responded to Scandinavian populations, and I don't see any effort to do that. When you get um, a lot of the, you know, the woke commentary and the conservative commentariat. Uh, you, you got Joe Rogan speculating about whether sunshine affects blacks differently because of the amount of melanin in the skin,
0: yeah. but
2: he's not. He's just talking about statistics coming out of New York City compared to Montana. He's not talking about the fact that coronavirus hasn't devastated Africa, which would have to be part of that conversation, so sure. it's a frustrating conversation for me to uh, observe when we get into calling uh, COVID-19 uh, the black plague and things like this. Mm-hmm. I think it does a disservice, and I just think it's better to talk about well, what Glenn mentioned first, which is that when the flood comes, the low-lying areas obviously take the brunt of it.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think that's all right. I mean, the the very short version of the Argument for not pressing race into service in healthcare beyond concerns about creating an expectation that there are these fundamental differences is that it it proceeds from a conclusion that really hasn't been established that these groups, as we interact with them and understand them, um, are concrete particular things, and that the differences are sort of fundamental. And I think it actually blunts our thinking. And it leads us to, to make conclusions about things, whether or not there is evidence to support them, which maybe this is a, an opportune time to transition to the the two shootings that I mentioned earlier, because there is another circumstance where folks had conclusions about things, which in some respects explicitly precede the evidence because the cases haven't been adjudicated yet. But we have a pair of shootings, one in Georgia and the other in Tennessee, as I mentioned earlier, both of these are young people, one I believe twenty-four, um, and the other twenty-six. Uh no, twenty-five, uh, is Ahmed Arbury and Brianna Taylor is twenty-six. No, he just missed his birthday. He just wow. missed his birthday. Yeah. But I mean these these shootings do have a lot in common. Um, young, unarmed people killed under obviously questionable circumstances. In one case, there's a young man who, as I'm sure everyone listening has heard at this point, was running. Uh, There was some sort of encounter or at least uh, something happened in the neighborhood where he was perhaps suspected of entering a home. Um, There is footage of him having previously entered the home and his his family seems to confirm that it was him. Um, When I look at that video, it's hard for me to not think about the various times I've walked into places that were under construction just to see what the hell was going on in a couple of instances.
3: did, Did the family confirm that the previous videos were him? Last time I had seen that they 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 confirmed that the video on on the day he was killed was him but there were four previous videos and according to the lawyer they said the family said they they hadn't you know they they kind of just gave an evasive answer about whether it was him they didn't confirm yeah, perhaps, although it looks like not. it could be
0: Yeah perhaps not in either case there is video of many people walking into the home right. which is to, which which further supports the notion that I am not yeah. bizarre in going to walk through a place that's under construction, not being malevolent or not stealing anything. Construction sites are interesting. But in either case, this particular decision would begin a series of tragic events that led to a bizarre car chase situation involving a private citizen who was former law enforcement, his son, and a neighbor who was trailing behind them, presumably also armed, but definitely with a camera. And at this point, all three of these men have been arrested and charged with various crimes. I believe they're all at least charged with murder. Um, and uh, there's a tremendous amount of upset. Now, Coleman, I know you recently wrote a piece about this, um, which will be published soon, and you can provide some details about it. Um, maybe you could talk a bit about some of the things that you uh, discovered in writing this piece that that most stand out to you. Because um, honestly, as I was reading it and I paid some attention, there were certainly things in, in your piece that – I was surprised to discover.
3: Mm. Um, so, my my basic sense of what happened to Amanda Arbery was a combination of police corruption and vi- a, a kind of vigilantism that is deeply concerning and, and deeply unwise, mixed with perhaps citizens' arrest laws that are too wide in scope and were created for. A world without transportation, um, organized police forces, widespread gun ownership, and whatnot. And I think the the jump to assume that uh, the McMichaels were primarily motivated by racial bias in pursuing him—it's very tempting at first, but the more you look at the contextual background facts of what happened, the more you can see how we probably should reserve judgment about whether they were motivated by racism and the the two contextual facts that i think are important to consider in this case are on the one hand i can see how you know i've never personally gone out for a jog and walked into someone's construction site but i can totally see how a a a person might do that out of curiosity on the other hand if you're if you're the owner of the construction site um where there might be very valuable belongings uh, and you've installed a motion-activated security camera, and it gets you get a notification every time a stranger walks on your property. And the same black male has walked on your property four times in the past several months. I think once in November, December, uh, October, and once uh, in early February. And you call the police every time, and you've you've never caught the trespasser. This was the case in in. Um, the Ahmad Arbery incident. And after the December incident of, of trespassing at the, at this property, uh, Gregory McMichael, who was the father, uh, the elder McMichael, he, uh, offered to help catch this trespasser. And a police, a local police texted the homeowner saying, uh, you have a f- former cop that lives a few doors down. You should, Contact him day or night uh, if you get any motion on on your security camera, and the implication, the strong implication here was that because he lived three or four doors down, he could respond before the police could get there and finally catch this serial trespasser.
0: So that's the first red flag because obviously so he, was, he was informally deputized.
3: Correct. Yeah, um, there was an informal arrangement for for a civilian to help catch a suspect, which I think is the the probably the most problematic. Uh, thing that happened here, uh, but the, the the second I think important piece of context that has been downplayed in the media is that the crime rate the crime rate in in Brunswick is almost equal to the crime rate in in Chicago's most dangerous neighborhood or considered most dangerous neighborhood
0: Austin. Is this property crime or violent crime? It's mostly property crime,
3: okay. where, whereas in, in in Chicago a lot of it it would be more. Skewed toward violent crime, but I think I think the easiest thing in the world is to dismiss a person's concern about crime in in their own neighborhood f- from from the outside. Whereas if we were in the situation where you know property crime was rampant and often unpunished and we didn't feel safe, it, it's it's much harder to judge, and it's Woman also what? easier to understand the eagerness to fight vigilante crime.
4: Coleman, what about the media reports we read, though, that um, there had not been a rash of breakthroughs in the neighborhood? Because I hear what you're saying completely. It's kind of like with Trayvon Martin, there had been a rash of young black men breaking in. And that's part of what conditioned Zimmerman's response, you know, whatever we have to say about it. In this case, though, we're being told that there wasn't a rash. What about that?
3: So most of the commentary has said that in the seven weeks leading up to um, uh, the uh, Arbery's death, there were no reported burglaries to the police, and that appears to be true in that in that neighborhood. On the other hand, um, the New York Times reported that in the in the six months leading up to the incident, there were like ninety nine one one calls from that neighborhood, um, and the either the father or the son reported a burglary or a break into his his car and a theft of a gun on January 1st uh which is 2 months before and then there's there's you know the the general crime rate in the city is in the top 5 percentile of the entire of cities in in, in the country wow so i think on the the weight of evidence suggests that a, a concern about crime is is something a re- a very reasonable person could have at the same time, acknowledging that it is deeply, deeply unwise, not only it's corrupt for, for a police to enlist the help of a civilian, but it's extremely unwise to try to affect a, a citizen's arrest of someone who has no reason to assume when being chased by men with guns that those men are trying to affect some kind of lawful arrest. And so there's been this whole push to say that, oh, you know, Arbery just shouldn't have grabbed the gun which is, I think, totally naive because mm-hmm. he had no reason to assume that the, the armed men chasing him weren't kidnapping him or mugging him, which I think is a deeper problem with citizen's arrests in general. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's probably a call to narrow the scope of when a citizen's arrest can be made rather than, uh, you know, assume we know that, try to nail the McMichaels as, as white supremacists.
0: Yeah, there's been some parallel concern about um, police officers in various cities who are operating outside of their uniforms. And there have been questions about the percentage of police-involved shootings that they end up being involved in. It's likely that many of them are actually in tactical units, but it's also very likely that in some cases like things go wrong for perhaps other reasons. But it's a question worth asking. Um, in either case, though— um, I suspect there are perspectives about this on down the line, because when we emailed, there was some interest in discussing this. Uh, I wonder um, if anybody wants to weigh in.
4: I just want to know, and I don't think we can know yet. What did those men or what did the younger ones say to him? And we can't know. You know, There's no audio on the, the tape, but did, did the guy just run out pointing his gun and say, can I stop you for a second? Was that it? Or did he say, roughly,
0: you know, can roughly. I stop
4: you for a second? We've heard reports of somebody. I should stop doing the act. <laughs> that's a good act Keep doing. <laughs> you know that's how they say. Sustain, can sustain I it. Can stop you, you know, because there have been reports of a burglary? Because what I can't help wondering, and I know this, this is not what I'm supposed to be thinking, but I am thinking it, God damn it, is why did he try to grab the gun? And I'm just trying, everybody is saying, every black man in the country is saying, if I was jogging, and I think to my, and for one thing, I don't jog, but if I was running down that street and some white men stopped me and they have a gun pointed, and I'm not criticizing Arbury. We were he was a very different person from me, but I wouldn't try to grab the gun. I would be afraid that the gun would shoot me. And so I'm thinking, I can't believe that they said, could you stop for a second? And Arbury just turned and started grabbing the gun. But then if they said, Can you stop for a second? We've heard about some break ins around here. Was his response to say, fuck you and grab the pistol? Because I can't imagine doing it myself. And it seems to me that everybody who is watching this thing considers that, okay, nobody should die because they grab the pistol. But I don't hear any discussion as to what an unusual response that would be. Yes, you're afraid you're going to get shot with this gun. You reach out and grab it. And I found that particularly odd with Michael Brown. That's what he did. And I just, is that what people do? Who grabs a gun? Okay.
3: So, and maybe I'm just I missing mean, something because so I
4: live in armchairs.
3: You know? I think, I think there's a couple factors that could explain. First of all, there's just like a personality element. Some people are more like ready to fight at all times than others. That's clear. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. Like I would, if someone points a gun at me, my hands are up instantly. And I'm just trying to, I, I'm instantly trying to seem as non-threatening as possible. Not everyone reacts that way. I think there's a big difference between Northern culture and Southern culture, and it always has been. The South has always been like, do the it yourself. Uh, well, yeah. And it's like observation as well. And, and, uh, I mean, if you look at like local news reports of murders from various places in the South, you, you find all kinds of crazy situations people get, get themselves into where they're, they're drawing, they're just quick on the draw. Often it's this redneck thing that, as people call it. Yeah, right. as people as people would call it. I mean, you know, I, I because of writing this piece, I was just reading a lot of other cases of citizens' arrest in the South, and I'm, a, it's almost always in the South, and I'm astounded at how quick a, a certain type of person is to draw their weapon or to get into a fight the moment someone has slighted them. It, it's it's foreign to me, but it is a particular culture that actually that like transcends race. And that exists. Um, and then there's, of course, the video that came out of Amada Arbery, uh, in a park a few years ago, uh, being approached and accosted by the cops and, uh, you know, attempted to be, to be tased by the cops and, you know, resisted a search, uh, of his car and the, the cop eventually backed off. But you can see how, um, I can see how a person who, perhaps is on more of the, the macho side is sort of by nature mixed with being chased. Here's the other thing that's important. He was chased for four minutes before the final confrontation. So he's, he's being chased by two, two men in trucks, two different trucks that are trying to triangulate and block his routes to escape going back and forth for four minutes. Must be very tired at this point with, with, Probably no clear idea exactly why they're chasing him, and then one exits the the, the driver's side with a shotgun.
2: I mean, he he must have despaired. It, it, it's quite easy to imagine just feeling like it's come down to.
3: It could have been a mix of anger, a mix of fear, okay, a mix but, of but confusion. But Who let knows? Me say a
1: couple of things. Excuse me, Coleman. Sure, um, but I don't want to lose the thought. One of them is. Okay, let's think about how race is playing a role in this incident. One obvious line of thought is the McMichaels are racist; they are profiling this kid because he's black. They suspect him of being a criminal, and they precipitate the incident. That well might be true. Here's another racial line of argument: Um, Ahmed Aubrey would have yielded to the inquiry of black citizens. If he had been on the other side of that highway back in his own neighborhood and people were trying to ask him a question about, I saw you was in that house, what was you doing in there? But he wouldn't yield to whites. That's a possibility. His reaction to the incident, John McWhorter raises a reasonable question. Certainly, I would have said, what do you guys want? And I wouldn't have gone for the gun. But his reaction might have been affected by his racial attitudes as opposed to the situation having been precipitated by the others. I think we have to at least consider that a possibility. The other observation I wanted to make is this was obviously not a lynching, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is not Emmett Till, whatever it was. So when a member of the United States House of Representatives, I'm talking about Bobby Rush, introduces a bill to the Congress, or when a person with a gazillion uh, Twitter followers like uh, LeBron James decides to pronounce on this, That has less to do with the facts of what actually happened and more to do with the imaginings of people about what social justice issues are important and how they should be framed. This was not a lynching. It was a tragic circumstance. It may well have been an expression of racial antipathy that happens to go in both directions. Whites can suspect and hate black people. Blacks can suspect and hate white people. But how we process this should be driven as much as it can be by the facts, not by some fanciful a construction of a narrative about how you can't even go jogging while you're a black person in this country. <laughs> I think
4: probably the key thing here is that if there didn't happen to be the recording, this you know, nothing would have happened, and that is a travesty. You know, this person's dead, and these guys are just going to go home and watch TV. That's not right. I mean, that really is a, a terrible thing. But I must admit, there. T- I like to try to put myself into other people's heads. That's why I'm always, you know, going into voices and stuff like that. But in this one, I must say, I know that what we're supposed to think is that Ahmad Arbery thought that these guys might want to just shoot him down in cold blood, like now. That. That's what, you know, the people with three names are are portraying this as. That that's what these guys might do. They think he's a burglar, something. You know, they're not completely insane, but they think he's a burglar, and they're just going to shoot him down. Now, never mind that. Wouldn't they be a little worried that they might not get away with that? But of course, Nicole Hannah-Jones would say they would not worry at all, 1690, et cetera. There's, I will never fully understand. Coleman, I get your point about the macho culture, the redneck culture, the South, aggressive males. What would make anybody grab a gun? That to me with Michael Brown seemed bizarre to hear this again and to realize that apparently it is a normal serial human reaction. I just can't get into their heads. I'm not saying they're crazy, but I guess I'm just never going to understand. I just don't want anybody to think that I'm saying that that means he deserved to be killed. But it just it's very hard for me to wrap my head around it because I can't square that response because I don't believe that Arbery thought that white men shoot black men in the back for no reason whatsoever. I can't condescend to him and think that that's what he was thinking. That's what somebody who writes for the mainstream media pretends to think.
2: I can kind of imagine it really easily. My, I could imagine my brother doing exactly that hmm. without having any record as a break-in artist or anything like that. When I was in undergrad, my brother was um, living in my parents' basement in Fanwood, uh, New Jersey, and coming home from work. Um, and he had an outstanding parking ticket. And, some, and, he, and, and it had become a warrant situation. There were a couple of local cops who Um, know my family from being the only black family in that part of town who were waiting for him when he came home from work and they asked him to come with them uh, because he had an unpaid ticket and there was a warrant and he said well he had some paperwork inside that would um, show that he had actually um, mailed in the ticket and that they could just solve the problem like that. The cops escalated the situation um, increasingly and my brother kind of got Um, afraid and he ran into the house uh, and got into a struggle over the garage door with the police and he tried to forcibly shut the door in their face. This actually led to two white cops um, when my father and mother came downstairs hearing the commotion um, beating my brother's teeth out with their flashlight pummeling his head into the concrete within the house of the garage and um, pointing their training their firearms on my father who was over the age of 65 and in like a sweater vest, um, looking professorial when he came in his own house to see what was going on. And only stopped when my mother got on the phone. My white mother got on the phone with, um, with the lawyer and started calling the neighbors for help. Um, And this was all because they just wouldn't allow my brother to um, speak in any way. And they got in his physical space and made him get into a kind of fight or flight response where he was, I mean, I couldn't imagine two armed cops coming at me and I throw the garage door between them. But he got into a point where he felt that that was somehow less risky than remaining in their, in their presence, doing nothing. So I can kind of imagine how these are not even cops. I mean, the video is horrific. When you see this guy standing on top of the flatbed of the truck looming over you and he's probably got a fire. Him. I mean, I could imagine just despairing.
0: Yeah, we, we still – there's still so much we don't know about what happened and Coleman, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my understanding is that they were pursuing him in the car and it seems as though they must have overtaken him. It's possible he knew there were multiple cars with multiple people in them and if they were shouting at him, hey, we want to talk to you and he could see that they were armed or even if he only discovered they were armed when they were you know, in front of him on the street, like this, this becomes a, a much more – touchy situation very quickly. And I'm, I wonder if I can bend this in a, in a slightly different direction because I'm, I'm also thinking about the, we're talking about the narrative around this case and the narrative struggle both for so the Aubrey shooting and the, the Taylor shooting in both cases, it's very much uh, about race, but the media coverage, like the editorializing that I've seen about this like, has spawned like this new thing running while black. Um, And the New York Times has printed a couple of pieces, one of which is just an an anthology of it's, it's hard for me to describe it as anything other than paranoid concern where regular everyday black folk are submitting their own stories of how they deal with the reality of running while black, which in some cases just amounts to I was running once and there was a guy who had his dogs off leash and I ran past him and we got into an argument. No racial epithets are exchanged. It's just like an unfortunate day for you while you're on your run. All of these people who are in- insisting that while they're running, they feel the need to wave at strangers so that they feel safe. I-, I don't know how much of this is performative, how much of it is imagined, um, and how much of it is real. But it's hard for me not to think that all of the extensive coverage of these stories, and the presumptions about race in contexts like this doesn't actually create, at least reinforce, a sort of paranoia that I certainly experience in a lot of circumstances. And I don't mean I experience it personally. I mean, I encounter people who, who believe these things. One further point on this, I mean, as I was reading the editorials recently, I was struck by some contradictory sentiments how people can both in these essays feel like, ignored and secluded because in some cases it's like running has never been for black people or there's no run club for black girls and at the same time also feel persistently surveilled and demonized and scrutinized by their neighbors. And it strikes me that it's hard for both of those things to be true simultaneously. But as with so many things in this universe, it's the sort of thing that's almost impossible to disprove and is sort of true regardless of the evidence that manifests itself if people are ignoring you somehow they're guilty if they're paying attention to you they're they're perhaps also guilty and if all they do is say hello maybe it's because they felt uncomfortable like if you have that narrative in your head it's it's pretty easy to activate it and confirm it
4: yeah. you know i've known a lot of um a lot of black people who've said this sort of thing over the years 20, 25 years back, I remember one young woman, I put her 26, 27, who said that she puts on a big smile on her face whenever she leaves her home because it's so her sister out here in the cops. And, you know, frankly, I thought, no, either you don't or if you do, there's something wrong with you. And that's not a nice way of putting it. But it means that, like Camille, what you're saying, she's drunken in a certain narrative. And in the portfolio that you're talking about, one very earnest, youngish guy says that he walks around with a smile on his face to disarm whites. And I remember thinking to myself, you don't need to do that. You've been told you need to do that. Like, for example, I'm getting older now, but I used to not be older. I used to be young. And I do not smile when I walk down the street. My default facial expression on the street is a kind of a pensive, Kantian glower, because I'm usually thinking about <laughs> yeah. writing something. Yeah. Coleman, you've seen me walking across campus. I'm not a smiler. You no, know, you're,
3: not, you're not someone who like you would just think to approach based on how you look in public. No, I've been told.
4: I've been told that it's just the way my face falls. And yet, I am quite sure that if I have ever scared any white people with that face, and I'm tallish, and I did not used to have slightly graying hair, as I started to just this year, Frankly, if that happened once, I don't care. And it's just not true. I walk down the street glowering, and it scares nobody. And I really think that that would be the case with all of these people who are apparently walking around grinning or, or jogging and thinking that people are looking at them. I don't mean arbory, but say, for example, the black woman who says, I'm jogging and I'm I'm being looked at. Are you? Is it that you're looking at everybody else and then they're looking back or something like that? People like that are vastly exaggerating a situation that hasn't been anywhere near true for at least 60 years. And you know, I have no numbers, but I pity them in a way. You know, they they've drunken in a narrative that makes them much less comfortable out of doors than they need to.
2: This is where I actually do wonder at the limits of my own experience, as embodied in my own particular body, though, because I don't make people uncomfortable either. But I wonder if it is different being encased in a darker skin um and physically looking like uh arbery looks as opposed to looking like me or you or coleman um my uh, a writer i don't particularly admire uh jelani cobb at the new yorker he talks about this a lot yeah he tweeted something like this is why i I, i i mentioned to white people at a dinner party uh that i i never jogged because i'm Afraid be, as a as a black as a big black man or whatever, and and and, and hmm. I think that they were looking at me like I was crazy. But now, now I want them to see this. And I was thinking about that in my initial reaction was to dismiss a guy like Johnny e. cobb But he's a big, bulky, black dude, and I was trying to picture him running around like, even in France. I was trying to picture him running around like the upper middle class kind of like rural area. I think he would have some problems or people would be uncomfortable with his presence physically. And I think that would be true in a Connecticut suburb or in a lot of places. Hmm. What do you think?
0: Camille? <laughs> I don't think he seems that fast. And I think you have to have a little bit of speed <laughs> and athleticism to actually seem intimidating. But I, I, don't, I, I don't want to toot my own horn. I think I have a bit of an athletic build. Perhaps I'm a sufficiently <laughs> of a sufficiently dark hue. Hmm. Um, I used to say when I lived in um, downtown Manhattan that I was the most um, intimidating person for for, you know, maybe a quarter mile in any direction. And I ran all the time and I never had a tense encounter with someone Was perhaps also not looking for it while running in New York regularly. You know, it's it's anecdotal, but it, but that's just it.
1: You
0: know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think this. Jelani's, uh, I mean, that's the easy
1: move. It's it's not the deep move, though. I'm reminded of this essay of Orlando Patterson's called American Dionysus, which is in his book, Rituals of Blood. And his point is, yes, niggas is catching hell in America. But guess what? The physical specimens who are the NFL and the NBA superstars and whose poster is on the bedroom wall of every 12-year-old boy in the country, their bodies are worshipped. Mm This is the emblem of physical extraordinary excellence. Okay, people want to go to bed with these guys, men and women, <laughs> black and white. I'm not making that up, and I'm not confessing anything. Saw the NFL
2: player who was sexually assaulted on the United Airlines
0: flight what? by the white woman is that true? Oh yeah, you didn't see no. this? No,
2: in the time.
1: <laughs> I'm just saying it's complicated. I'm, uh, all I'm saying is the black body is not only as Tanahashi <laughs> Uchikoto. The, the sight of an unrepressing white supremacist <laughs> domination. It's also the sight of adoration.
0: I've had at least two experiences in Europe where people have stopped me and thought I was some sort of footballer while I was on holiday. You let them think that? Of course, I let them think that. I mean, why would I want to dissuade them of that? Uh, <laughs> you know, I need to drink it in for a little bit. You know, I'm sure I play for Arsenal.
2: Of <laughs> yeah, <course>. I'm Mbappe.
0: I want to make
3: a yeah. Just a point about um, how, how atrocities are, are treated very differently depending on what kind of atrocity they are. So I I, know if, I don't know if you remember, maybe a year ago, I think there was an illegal immigrant that killed some white woman. Do you guys remember this? I don't remember oh, all the details. of white woman. <laughs> yeah, uh, an American you know, white woman. I, I can't forget. I forget the details. But yeah. In the wake of something like that, there there is a contingent on the far right that is tempted to do precisely what a lot of folks on the left are doing right Absolutely. now with the Arbery incident, yeah. which is to say, Americans, you know, we we there's a huge problem with illegal immigrant crime, we're importing crime over the border. I I fear for my life every time I, I you know, I I exit my house. There there's a contingent also, you know, more on the right that. Was tempted to do this with jihadi terror after, of course, the trauma of 9 11, but you know, the somewhat anomalous trauma of, 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 of 9 11 that was, you know, tempted still in, you know, the 2010s to say, I fear an act of terrorism every, every time I, I leave my house. And the attitude taken towards someone who expresses that kind of outsized and irrational fear is one of utter scorn. Um, complete skepticism. And uh, sometimes it's too dismissive. One can get too dismissive of such concerns, but there was no sense that we have to respect somebody's fear just because there has been some legitimate trauma that sparked it. And there's a huge double standard when it comes to any kind of atrocity that is uh, visited upon a Black American.
4: As in... If I say, you know, and I live in a neighborhood where there are a great many New York Times reading two and a half children types of couples, if I were to jog, if that's what I wanted to do, I'm supposed to really feel that I'm in some kind of danger because those people are going to be looking upon me as a potential criminal, when actually, if anything, they look upon me and give me massive benefit of the doubt because of the way things like the Arbery killing are portrayed. And I'm supposed to be afraid that if a cop, and New York City cops can be really nasty guys, but I'm supposed to be afraid that if one of them stops me because I'm running in the wrong lane or something like that, that I might be shot through with bullets as if I was in a Scorsese movie. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. For me to really feel that way would mean that there was something wrong with me. It would be paranoid despite the fact that I know what happened to Aubrey, and I would be paranoid feeling that way if I were doing the running in Atlanta. Uh, but yeah, it's condescending that we are taught that we're supposed to be paranoid that way. When the woman who doesn't want to step outside because she's afraid she's going to get raped by a Mexican or bombed by somebody from Saudi Arabia, we think of her as, one, jittery, and two, as, you know, sick as in being a racist. Yeah, but we're allowed. It's okay for us. That's that's a wrong, That's a, that allowance is wrong on the part of the mainstream media.
0: Yeah. Well I wanted to talk about a few other things as well. I we I mentioned Brianna Taylor several times so I I hate to move on without saying something slightly more about that case. Um there was a a a midnight raid on the wrong house. Um and Brianna Taylor and I believe her husband were upstairs sleeping. Um there is some question as to whether or not the police actually announced themselves as police when they were breaking into her home that night to prosecute this search warrant that they had um but in either case uh there was a firearm in the house um, her husband uh shot at who he believed people who he believed were intruders um they returned fire and i believe miss taylor was shot like eight times she was unarmed and killed um and there's been a lot of emphasis on her race. This story has gotten less attention. Um, one column in particular stood out to me. Breonna Taylor was murdered for sleeping while black, which again, is the wild black formulation. Um, um, the, the, the thing that strikes me as very important about this case is the degree to which this is something that happens frequently, which is to say these no knock raids like happen all of the time. These tactical units in local police departments, um, they have gone badly on a number of occasions in some cases for similar reasons, because the wrong address was served in either case, the fundamental questions that we ought to be asking from my standpoint, aren't whether or not, you know, black people are being overkilled in circumstances like this. It's why on earth we are insisting on prosecuting a war on drugs and requiring ourselves to, to withstand or to allow policies like this to exist where Armed agents of the state are breaking into people's homes in the middle of the night to search their homes and arrest people, running the risk of killing innocent people, needlessly injuring neighbors or creating panic and concern in neighborhoods. There almost certainly has to be a better way. Um, And it is necessarily true. In fact, it is explicitly true. I know the cases um, that this has happened to white people and black people, and it's happened under all manner of disturbing circumstances And in many, many, many of the cases, the police departments do what many police departments do, behave in self-interested ways, protect their own, um, falsify information related to their um, investigation. And this is not, uh, you know, this is not a litany against the police. I think there are plenty of good police officers, but under desperate circumstances where they might get in trouble, lose their jobs, their pensions, go to jail, um, police officers lie, um, as many people do. Um, and I think you can't have that conversation if you racialize every single one of these issues um, and encounters. And I, I think it's it's tragic and unfortunate. And it's not even obvious to me that her family has a problem with it. I think Benjamin Crump, um, who is notorious or famous for representing folks in cases like these, is also the lawyer for her family in this particular circumstance. So there's that.
1: Uh, Camille, I'm, I'm going to have to ring off soon. I, I want to say something before I go. I have, a, I have another appointment. Oh, sure, sure. Which I think the point you're making, we can't have that conversation about policing if we racialize every little incident. is just very important and deserves to be underscored. Policing is an issue for the country. Many, many more whites than blacks are killed by police. Many more unarmed people who are white are killed by police than black. Police tactics are a legitimate political question. Everybody has an interest in that. Among the issues in police tactics are racial, but they are not the primary issues. The off, the legitimate use of deadly force and ambiguous circumstances against unarmed people is the issue, Absolutely. and that's an issue for everybody. We need to de-racialize that conversation for two reasons, in my opinion. One is to have a more effective examination of policing as a broad issue, but the other is there's a lot of black criminals in the country. Excuse me. If you insist on (laughs) racializing every such conversation, you invite a subterranean response, which is, well, how many white people have been killed by black people? The answer is many, many more than black people killed by white people. Many more. We don't want to go there.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, also, and this
4: goes to Glenn's point. (laughs) This is the undergrad say that. This goes to your point. And now I've picked that (laughs) up for a minute. This goes to your point, Glenn, which is that... um, I am assuming, just assuming, based on a conversation you and I had and what you just said, with the problems with meth and heroin with very white people in a lot of parts of this country, that as hideous as the Brianna story is, there are white versions of that that Benjamin Crump wouldn't be interested in. I'll bet they're a lot sure. because the police are involved in a ridiculous war on drugs and they are very often incompetent, especially in a pinch. And so the question is, have there been Roberta's and Tiffany's and Crystal's, as opposed, there I go again, I'm sorry, but as opposed to the Briannas, and you know there have been. That's the thing. Now, the other question is, is there a white Ahmad Arbery, and I can't think of one, and I'll bet, I might lose this bet, just like I lost the last one you and I made, I'll bet that there is something black about that case. But in the case of what happened to Brianna Taylor, I think that's a race-neutral American drug war story. Hmm.
1: Okay, good to see you all. I apologize. Uh good luck. Uh thanks a lot, Camille. Thank you, Glenn. Okay. Bye all. See you, Glenn. Glenn. See you, Glenn. Good to see you, Thomas.
3: One thing I wanted to say about the the, the Amada Arbery Arbor incident was yeah, I think I don't wanna I don't want someone to feel like we skipped over without really mentioning, although John quickly mentioned it, the fact that they didn't press charges against anyone for two months. And I think on its face, that's another area where people will be tempted to say it was because the, the, the guys who killed them were white or the guy they killed was black or a combination, even though it's, it's a drag to, to not take a position where there's so much pressure to. But I think we really simply don't know. We don't know that it was a racial bias, uh, because it could equally have been, as Camille was saying, the police's tendency to protect their own. And they had an ex, ex cop, in fact, an ex detective who tried to however ineptly and uh, really unwisely make a citizen's arrest. And when they got to the scene, they know the guy or they know a guy who knows the guy and they know he was a quote unquote, good guy, um, good good cop. And they take his version of events out of an instinct to protect their own where, you know, we don't necessarily know that that was race, although people will want to jump to that. Nevertheless, even if it was uh, just a police bias, that is a huge problem. And I think the bigger problem, a harder problem to root out, it's less of a sexy problem to talk about politically, uh, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's an example of like routine everyday corruption that has serious consequences.
0: Yeah. So the two things I wanted to talk about briefly were the presidential election, which bizarrely is still happening. Um, and I can't imagine a more unusual circumstance for a presidential election to be taking place in. Um, and there are sort of interesting things of interest to us associated with the Biden campaign. Um, there's also a piece that I shot around, and I'm not sure if anyone else looked at it, um, called "The Cities We Need." It was a, an a te- editorial piece in the New York Times, which struck me as odd for a number of reasons. And I thought, you know, just as a imagining the world after COVID. And as people who are men of the world and think big thoughts, I wondered if if you did have an opportunity to read this, what your thoughts were. I mean, what what struck me about the piece was the degree to which it focused almost exclusively on racism and segregation as sort of the principal problems facing cities. Um, It did talk about schooling and inequality, but it only really addressed those things through the lens of segregation and, and racism. A few things about the piece sort of beyond that bothered me. One, I think it's terribly unimaginative uh, in the sense that essentially it's hard for them to imagine any problem not being resolved by additional payments from the state um, and additional state action. But those are my libertarian bugaboos. Um, But (laughs) more than that, um, the the oddness of a circumstance where. You know, in one universe, gentrification is a terrible thing um, because black white people are moving into predominantly black neighborhoods um, and displacing black people. In another instance, like this one, you have an over-concern or a particular concern about these isolated enclaves of blackness. And it's very odd that they want to have it both ways. And it's similarly odd that when you have in New York City for example amongst the best schools are some of its charter schools and those charter schools are enclaves of blackness and while the New York Times is has a tendency to to worry about segregation in schools and the degree to which that may correspond to underperformance it is it always strikes me as odd that they never pay any attention to what is perhaps the best thing to happen to low income Minority students, but low income students trapped in bad schools in the last like 50 years, which is the school choice movement, which plenty of choice schools don't work well. Um, but many of them do work exceptionally well and have gotten a lot of kids out of a bad situation.
4: Oh, I, 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 I skimmed the piece closely. And um, I think that the truth is that from a historical perspective, the idea that the main problem with today's big city, such as the city that I live in, is that too many people of color live in neighborhoods where most other people are people of color, or even that a disproportionate number of people of color are poor, depending on what you call poor. That second thing is a real problem. The idea that that is the main problem of this municipality is gonna look religious. I mean, that is, that, that's a fetish. There are many, many other things that need to change in New York City besides those things. And as you're saying, Camille, a little segregation, depending on what kind it is and how it arose and what it's for, can be a good thing, such as those schools. And yet we're supposed to think more about those kids learning alongside middle-class white kids because of rather minor educational gains that lends, rather than people going to school within the social comfort of people like them and just maybe moving to some neighborhood where most people are still the same color as them. We have a very liturgical way of talking about these things. And it's disturbing, but I've learned to read past it myself. I just figure it's like reading something by some medieval scholastic somewhere in France. They are weighted <laughs> down by certain orthodoxies, and I'll just have to think for myself. So that's what I thought of that piece.
0: Any other perspectives there? I
2: can't. I can't. I can't really. I can talk about New Yorker writers, but I can't really talk on um, New York Times.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. I like. Uh, the, I value the New York Times. The New York Times is an august publication. I, it's indispensable. It the editorial section is important to me. I read it religiously. But I wish, for all of the concern that they express about diversity, that they would find some diversity of opinion that they could inject into some of those columns because they'd be more interesting. It would be more interesting if you weren't simply just telling me your perspective on this, if you wrestled with some of the nuance, and I'd be happy to devote a couple of hours a week to doing that for you all. If that's what you need. now I'm not directing that at you, Thomas. That's Folks at the times who are almost certainly listening. Um,
3: I, I want to say, can I say one thing about uh, oh, gentrification?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the,
3: the conversation, uh, this is, particularly interesting to me because gentrification i don't know if you've noticed john is kind of a pet issue of of college students in general mm-hmm. and particularly columbia mm-hmm. because columbia is uh you know basically right on the border of morningside right in. heights in harlem and it's you know it's it's the site of gentrification one of the biggest sites in in the city and it's become um sort of a I can't tell you how many times a kid has just dropped into a conversation how, you know, how messed up it is that Columbia is gentrifying the neighborhood and I've I've actually never heard a single uh student in my four years express even like a neutral position on gentrification let alone a positive one and it, um to to me that's interesting because a few months ago I spent I spent some time digging into uh, the, the scholarly papers that have been done by economists and sociologists on gentrification and it 's actually difficult to find one that says it 's a bad thing mm-hmm. for the the original residents of a neighborhood and the The largest study i 'm aware of that that has been done was came out maybe six months ago or so uh, and they looked at the hundred most populated regions of the country by census tract. and and were able to follow particular individuals over a span of 10 years. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that, you know, there's a lot of uh, original residents of these neighborhoods that own property, black people that own property in a neighborhood like Harlem um, property that would not have been super valuable. uh, Let's say 30 Mm -hmm. years ago, but because of gentrification has doubled, tripled in value. So that the, you know, the wealth gains measured to the original residents are, you know, like on average, something like $10,000 over the course of, of a decade, uh, because in gentrifying census tracts where those wealth gains are not realized in, in tracts that do not gentrify. And if you actually look at how many people are forced to leave a neighborhood because of gentrification, it's, it's extremely small. It's something like, Mm. you know, less than one in 10 or thereabouts. And if you ask the further question, do they end up moving to a neighborhood that is worse, better, or the same? What this study at least found was that, on average, they move to a neighborhood that's ex- exactly like the one they came from. Mm. So the the, the benefits, if you, on, a, on a, any kind of cost-benefit analysis, even if you're only considering the original residents and not the gains from the people who move into a neighborhood, Yes, you can write the long and like really compelling piece about the mom and pop shop in the neighborhood that went out of business. And if you just read that piece, I can totally see how a reasonable person would come to the conclusion that like, this is something we we all have to be against. But if you, if you really take seriously that each person's interests are equal to the next, which is one of the most important moral principles that exist. You have to look at the full picture and it's, it's pretty clear that gentrification is a good thing. It's a good sign. It means crime has gone down. It means people are flourishing. It means naturally in, um, um, neighborhoods are becoming income and racially integrated. And frankly, if it was the case that instead of white people being the face of gentrification, it was like high income Indian Americans, I don't think
0: any, anyone
3: on, on Columbia's would that, no. campus would have yeah.
0: a bad thing to say about it. You couldn't. Maybe to close things out, we could chat quickly about the election. Camille, uh-huh. I have
4: to duck out now because I have a Columbia thing. Yeah. And so, folks, folks, this was fun. And what I think about the election is that it's crazy. And <laughs> <laughs> I hope to talk to all of you again very soon. And so be well.
0: Okay. Bye, John. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Great to see you. So this is, this is where we get to the good part. <laughs>
3: The elders have left the building. The elders have left the
0: building. <laughs> <to play. laughs> I saw, Thomas, uh, a tweet earlier today, and I th- you saw it too. You emailed about it of Charlemagne, who's, uh, I wouldn't say we're friends, but we know each other. He was interviewing Joe Biden, and I only saw the end of this exchange. And I'll drop the audio in here.
1: Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I will. A, it's a long way until November. We got more questions.
2: You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you
0: ain't black. At the end of the exchange, Joe Biden is engaging in what can only be described as racial essentialism. If you have any trouble figuring out who to vote for between me and Donald Trump, you're not really black. You ain't really black. You ain't really black. He's jive. You're right. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is Mr. They're going to put you all back in chains. This is how you know he really means it when he's digging this deep. Um, this is the same Joe Biden who you know, has pledged to add a, a woman as his VP, which perhaps we have differences of perspective on how appropriate or important that is. Um, but some of the contenders um, are, in fact, women of color. He's being urged to select women of color um, in many instances by Stacey Abrams, who desperately wants to be that woman of color, perhaps more than anyone has ever wanted anything in the universe. But it does seem like in this particular campaign, like the VP pick is actually a pretty big deal. Both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are very old. In my estimation, Joe Biden actually seems a bit frailer um, and more vulnerable. He's also older. Not much, though, right? It's like only a year or so. No, Joe Biden's 78, right? Oh. Well, he he seems it. And I, I think, you know, there's a very good probability that whoever is the VP may eventually be president. So thoughts on the way the campaign is going? Thoughts on Joe Biden? Deciding that it's totally appropriate to inform people that they are insufficiently black if they're not supporting his campaign.
2: representative of everything that kind of like drives me crazy about the way that we talk about race in America these days and, and gets into a lot of what I've been on my hobby horse about for the past few years. Uh, there is no Black identity. There is no Black essential identity that owes Joe Biden allegiance and has to vote a certain way.
0: Nicole Hannah-Jones apparently is involved in some sort of Twitter scrape, which is typical. It just means it's uh, it's Friday. <laughs> she... So all I know is that there is a tweet that someone has screen capped from her saying there is a difference between being politically black and being racially black. I'm not defending anyone, but we all know this and should stop pretending that we don't. I don't know what that means, but this is also racial essentialism. It's still unacceptable when it's performed or done by someone who happens to self-identify as black.
2: I tweeted this thing and then Jake Taffer retweeted it and then it and then and then i noticed torre retweeted my thing and he was trying to make a case for why black people actually do need to why why actually like joe biden wasn't uh doing anything essentializing in in, in his construction why it was actually like like completely hmm. fine that he said that and i wanted you know I, I made it clear in my original tweet that just like i will vote for anybody against donald trump i i, <laughs> I will happily canvass for joe biden it's not a question of that but i think we can still um, critique the way that a he takes it as a spectacle completely that he always has an ethnic allegiance that that, that black people are required to kind of right thinking black people must um, support him and b that you know he kind of he has this kind of condescending patronizing tone that he takes when he's performing a kind of familiarity with black people that I think is completely inappropriate. Charlemagne the God was was being a real professional in the situation mm-hmm. trying to have a serious conversation and, and and Joe Biden starts shucking and jiving with him which is like calling him Coltrane or something in the Royal mm. bonds, You know, it's like, it's, it's like the way Gene Hackman's talking yeah, to Danny yeah. Glover in the Royal Tenenbaums. It's, it's, it's like deeply insulting. It, it doesn't mean that Donald Trump didn't just say yesterday that, that, that Henry Ford has good bloodlines and that's not a much <laughs> graver and more serious thing. It, it's much more serious, but it doesn't mean that just because Donald Trump speaks that way, that anything Joe Biden says is uncritiquable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the context mm-hmm. really does make the comment worse because, Charlemagne is acting in the the context of a journalist, and he is asking you questions. And in an attempt to evade his invitation to sit down and continue to talk, you respond, look, if you're black and you're having trouble deciding between me and and Trump, you're not really black. We ain't got to talk no more. Ain't nothing else to say. That's the mic drop. That that is insane. That's crazy.
3: (laughs) It's, it, it's interesting that it's, it's the same Biden that like six months ago was remembering how he would reach across the aisle to segregationists and talking about how he was the one who could make compromise with even very flawed people. And of course, got some flack for that. The assumption that he shouldn't reach, reach across the aisle, but he's saying a black Republican. Well, you're not even you're not even black. What do you
2: what do you think of this distinction, Ray, the the, the difference between being racially black and being politically black? I, I
0: mean, blackness as an identity, right? There are beliefs that correspond to being a member of an identity group. At, at a minimum, like its beliefs about the corporality of that identity, but oftentimes there is much more than that. And I'd say that in general, the notions of you know, some. Fundamental sense of historic injustice and grievance, and perhaps even some other characteristics. They can be defined, I think, broadly as you know that's what blackness is, um, and the notion of there being a political reality associated with that isn't something that actually strikes me as terribly odd, given the clinical way that I think about race. But I think for people who imagine race as something that is is a bit more real and sort of inescapable, and for certainly people like Teray, who in the past wrote a book about blackness, um, in which he said explicitly that there are as many ways to be black black. as there are black people, something Barack Obama's also said. it, It strikes me as exceedingly inconsistent to suggest that one has to support a particular candidate in order to maintain their blackness and I'm not certain that there is another racial identity group in the United States, like and it's certainly not amongst the major ones, um, as opposed to the subsets that more intensely polices um, the the boundary lines of its own group, and I think that sort of rabid identitarianness, like right, it, oftentimes even manages to sort of outpace like what i see expressed by like white nationalists like it's really intense and and its worst forms can be like pretty nasty so i don't know that's kind of an answer
3: yeah i think the uh, there there's always a there's a lot of people who are stuck in a, a a dilemma where a lot of black people where on the one hand um they don't conform to in some important way to stereotypes about blackness Say they're like very nerdy or they're really into comic books or whatever it is. They love classical music. On the other hand, they have a deep craving to be accepted as a bona fide approved member of the black community, Hmm. that abstraction that people feel even though you can't touch it. I think if we were to ask any of these people, they would completely agree with us and say, yeah, of course you can be black if you love books and say you don't like hip hop, you like classical music. There's there's a there's always a a desire to in in certain circumstances make blackness as wide a a field of possibility as possible. But at the same time the moment you do that, you actually make the identity meaningless. Mm-hmm. And you, I think you pointed this out a lot, Camille. If, yeah. if blackness is everything, then it's nothing. by definition, we don't it's need nothing. It. Yeah. Mm-mm. And so, so there's a there's a there's just a tension that is a- absolutely not resolvable between the the better angels that you know of, of our nature of, of for many people that want to make everything inclusive but also don't want the identity itself to fade into nothingness. And there's no way to resolve those twos. It will always be attention.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's unresolvable, which is why it tempts me to want to do away with the whole construct in the the first place. We we, We
1: know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 Column.
3: Column.